Okay, great. Okay, so I have to tell you that I stand here with very, very great trepidation and a sense of overwhelm because it's the night before Yom Kippur and um, honestly, I don't feel like I have any business being here speaking to you. So I'd like to share with you a story about the Chafetz Chaim that I think will express my feelings very, very well. So the Chafetz Chaim wrote the Sefer, Shmiras Haloshon, and, um, and Chafetz Chaim, and he used to go around to different villages selling his farim, and that's how he started to make a living. After a while, he started the yeshiva in Raden, and he also wrote the Mishnah Brura and Likute Halachos, and he needed to sell those farim too. But he didn't have time to sell them anymore because he was busy writing, and he was busy running a yeshiva. So he hired other people. He hired young men who would go around selling his books, and they would have a piece of the profits, and then everybody would, would do well. But he asked them for one thing. If you're going to sell my books, I really want you, every place that you go, to stand up and give a drusha, give a talk about guarding your tongue, guarding your mouth, about limud ha-Torah, the importance of learning Torah, and about being careful about your time. Don't waste your time. Use your time for good things. This is what he asked. You can be one of my agents, but you got to go and sell my books. But more importantly than selling my books, you have to go and give the people his overrus. Give them an understanding of what these books are about and how, how important it is. Okay, so we had these young men, these agents who were going out all over the place. And one time, a young man came back to him after his, his uh, trip to sell this for him. And he came back and he gave the Chafetz Chaim the prophets, and he said to him, I'm quitting. So the Chavetz Chaim said, what do you mean you're quitting? Why are you quitting? He said, I'm quitting because I'm going around to people and I'm telling them to stop talking Lashon Hara, and I'm telling them to learn Torah, and I'm telling them not to waste their time, and I can't say that I do all of those things, so I'm quitting. I have no right to say those things to people. So the Chavetz Chaim says to him, Oi, a bracha on your kepaleh. Let me tell you a story. So he tells him the following story. That once upon a time in Poland, there was a man who, as people often did, there was a Jew who rented an inn from the parrots, from the landowner. You know how the Jews always used to do that. They would rent a, a piece of land or a building from the landowner, and then they would have a bit, an inn, and that would give them their parnas, so they'd be able to make a living with that inn. So, of course, everybody, there was always trepidation when it came to the landowner, to the parrots. You had to treat him with great honor. And it's on, I think. She turned it on. Okay, great. And one time, the, the innkeeper heard that the parrots, the landowner, was coming to visit him in the inn. People came running and said, the parrots is on his way, the parrots is on his way. So, of course, he got very nervous. He starts making sure everything looks great. And the landowner comes in and he says to him very obsequiously, your honor, we're so honored to have you here. What can I get for you? So the parit said to him, and he says, would you like some wine? Would you like some mead? What can I give you? He says, no, I'll take a glass of tea with a cube of sugar. Now, in those days, there were no faucets like we have nowadays, right? So how did you get your water? There was a well in the courtyard, and everybody would take their buckets, and they would get the water from the well that was in the courtyard, and they would bring it back to the kitchen, and there were big barrels in the kitchen. You would dump the water into the barrels in the kitchen. And when you did that, you covered the barrel. First, you covered the barrel with a piece of linen. 
because the water from the well was full of sediment and sand. So when you would pour the water into the bucket, the, the linen piece would strain it, and then you knew when you took water from the bucket, it would be clean water. So he goes into the kitchen and he dips the thing into the bucket and he pours the water into the samovar and he heats up the water and he puts in the tea and he brings it to the landowner and he's very, very into your honor. I hope that you'll enjoy this. So the pirate takes it and he takes a sip of it and he goes, he spits it out. He says, this is disgusting water. It's full of sand. So you can imagine the guy turns white, the innkeeper turns white and he says, I'm so, your honor, I'm so sorry. I don't understand how this happened. Somebody forgot to strain the water. Let me go take care of it. It'll take a few minutes. It's going to take a few minutes. So the landowner is sitting there and waiting. Of course, he's impatient, looking at his watch, you know, like that. <laughs> While he's sitting there, messengers come from the castle that the landowner, that the pirates owns, and they say, there's a fire in your castle. There's a fire in your castle. So the whole town gets together. There's no water up here in the castle. There's only water in the well in the central courtyard. So he commands everybody in the village to take two buckets, fill them with water, bring them to put out the fire, go back, get another two buckets. Everybody was mobilized. They're running up the hill with these buckets of water. They're going back and refilling them. And the pirates notices, the landowner notices, that the guy, the innkeeper, is not there. And he's furious. I give him this in to rent out, and he's not even there? So he says, I'm going to get him. Of course, his, his place is going up in flames. Everybody's pouring water, but he's mad. So he's going to go, and he's going to yell at this innkeeper. He <coughs> runs back to the innkeeper, and he's looking all over for him. And finally, he goes in, and he sees him in the kitchen. He's straining the water. <laughs> and he says, what are you doing? He said, I promised you some water without sand. So I'm trying to get the water without sand. Says, you idiot! There's a fire raging! There's a raging fire, you idiot! What are you doing? It doesn't matter for a fire if there's sediment in the water. <laughs> Just come with the water and put out the fire. Says the Chafetz Chaim to this young man. It could be that in earlier generations you wouldn't be worthy to speak to people about Shmir Salashon and Limud HaTorah and not wasting your time. But there's a fire raging! You've got to get out there and do it. So I say to myself, okay, never call you that I have to help put out the fire. <laughs> There's a fire. But I have news for you too, ladies. You're also in trouble because you also are agents of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And you've got to get out there and sell his book. And you have to talk to people about that book through the way you live. And guess what? We may not be good enough, okay? We have lots of sediment, yes. Maybe lots of sand and dirt, yes. But, but, but there's a fire raging. We live in a world that is determined to cut God out of the world. I have a little cartoon on the side of my fridge. It's actually from there was the Sandy Hook school shooting. And there's a picture in this cartoon of a school with the big yellow, it's not in color, it's black and white, the big, um, crime scene thing in front of it, and there are two women standing there. And one woman says to the other woman, why couldn't God have stopped the school shooting? And the other woman says, well, they kicked him out of the classroom, so how could he? But you understand, that joke, that's an old joke now, that joke wouldn't go over now, because now it's not a joke. 
Now there's no God anywhere. There are no values. There are no standards, and we're proud of it. We are living in a time where there's a fire raging, and every one of you is out there selling. And it's okay that we're not perfect. Now, we may not be perfect, but we can also achieve a lot of things. I want to share with you something that somebody achieved. It was 80 years ago, and could we do it? I don't know that I, I know that I couldn't do it, but I want you to get a picture of a sediment Jew. Okay, we're sediment Jews nowadays, right? We're full of sediment. A sediment Jew and what he did. This is a story from Rabbi Yosef Friedensen. Some of you know about him. He was a very, he was a Holocaust survivor. He just died not that long ago. I think within the year maybe even. And he was a very prolific writer after the war, a speaker and a writer, and he tried very hard to help with the Holocaust remembrance. An amazing person, you can probably find lots of videos about him. So when the war broke out in September of 1939, he was 17 years old, and he lived in Lodz. And for certain reasons, he and his father immediately escaped to, Lodz, to, to Warsaw because they were under the mistaken impression that they needed Polish people to come and fight off the Germans. So they <coughs> went to Warsaw. Warsaw was a horror. Why was it a horror? Because it was a, a major city, and the Germans were surrounding it and trying to capture Warsaw, right? So he writes about his Yom Kippur in Warsaw. First of all, there's no food. There's barely any food. You can't go out on the streets because the bombs are falling all the time. And so he talks about, he starts by talking about <clears throat> Arab Yom Kippur. First of all, they had nothing to eat. They found a little bit of rice in a nearby burnt down building. And they were all staying in the home of this Rabbi Yosef Elia Kutner. It was an apartment. They had nowhere else to go. He was having a bunch of people in his house. He didn't have any food either. And so they're all in his house, and it's Erev Yom Kippur. They eat the rice, and then he says, it is difficult to describe the scene. The sounds of Kol Nidre became intermingled with the sounds of ear-piercing bombs. The explosions came nearer and nearer, and Rabbi Yosef Elia never moved. Rabbi Yosef Elia was standing at the Amur, and he was davening for them. He never moved pounding, you could hear it all over the place, he didn't move. And then he finished the davening, and he stood there, and he finished the shir ha-yichud, and then he finished chazering the shisha sidre mishnah, which he had taken on himself, fine. And then he says that that night was child's play compared to what happened the next day, because the Germans were getting really disgusted that they couldn't overcome Warsaw, so they pulled out the whole Luftwaffe, and they start pouring bombs down on the city. The noise was ear-splitting. We were all trembling in fear. As the shelling and bombing intensified, many of us left the room in which we were davening to hide in interior corridors. But not Rabbi Yosef Elia. He didn't budge for a moment. So just get this picture. Okay, we're sitting here and we're having a shear. Okay, we're having a talk about Yom Kippur. And the bombs start coming down. And all around us, there's death and destruction. Are we going to sit here calmly and continue our talk? No, I'm the first one to run. Trust me, I'll be out of here in 10 seconds. Where I go, I don't know, maybe the basement. Reb Elia, Reb Yosef Elia, didn't budge for a moment. He didn't even notice that at some periods of the day, he was the only one left in the room. Now, he's a sediment Jew. He lived in 1939. I don't think he made it through the war. 
he didn't live in the time of the Jews in the desert. He didn't live, live in the time of the Beis Hamikdash. He didn't live, live in the time of the Nevi'im. He was a Jew who lived in Europe. In 1939, 80 years ago, look what he pulled off. He didn't even hear the bombs. That's called Yom Kippur, a relationship with the Kodesh Baruch Now, that was 80 years ago. What do you want from us? Okay? There were two, there was a, a, an entire Holocaust that went on. They didn't even know what was facing them. And in that Holocaust, when we lost six and a half million Jews, we lost their Torah and we lost their Yeras Shemayim. We don't even know what it looks like. We don't know what it looks like. We had a few Gedolim who came over from there who Barbash and brought us some pieces of that so we could see them. But now? like he could pull that off could we pull off such a thing do we even expect it of ourselves so I'm going to turn this around a little bit and I would say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you know it's very nice that we're sediment Jews but please understand something we have no Beis HaMikdash we have no prophets we have no Karbanos we have no Sanhedrin we have no Tanoim even we have none of those kind of Torah scholars that there were in those days. We don't have a red string that hangs in the base of Mikdash and we can see it turn white. Oh, Salafti Kidvarecha, I've forgiven you like you asked me to. Yes, we saw, now we can celebrate. We don't have that. We walk out of Yom Kippur and we don't know where we're holding. What do you want from us? 3,300 years after you gave us the Torah, Guess where you ladies are tonight, Erevim Kipper? You're here. Out of the 14.4 million Jews in the world, which is the latest census, how many thousands tonight are thinking about Yom Kippur? How many thousands are at a sheer? How many thousands are thinking about how they can connect with a Kodesh Baruch Hu, or feeling bad that they're not thinking about it? How many? 100,000? I don't even know. But it's certainly not half a million. It's certainly not a million. Out of 14.4 million, you're it. So you're selling the merchandise. And you have to recognize that that is what we are doing. So I want to read to you something from the Tzitkas HaTzadik. The Tzitkas HaTzadik, Ratzadok HaKohen, talks about his generation. Now, he died in 1900. So let's say his generation is the second half of the 19th century. Right? 1830-something and on. Okay? So he wants to talk about his generation. Listen to what he says about his generation. Kasab tzit kasat tzadik. Kishem Oh, wait. Here's the, the, the title. The Yetzahara of Avodah Zorah in our generation, he says. Okay? There was idol worship in his generation. You want to hear what that idol worship was? Here's what it was. The same way a person has to believe in Hashem, once he believes in Hashem, the next step is he has to believe in himself. And if he doesn't, that's the Yetzirah for Avodah Zarah, for worshiping idols, which means not believing in God. This is the Tzidkas HaTzadik. And he wants to say, 
A person has to know that Hashem is involved with you. You're not just some kind of a thing, a throwaway disposable, that he creates it one night and he destroys you the next. No. He has to believe. That your soul, your essence, is from the source of life, which is Hashem himself. And... Hashem Yisbarach Misaneg Hashem enjoys you. He plays with you like a little child on your on his lap. Every time when a person does his will, he picks you up and he says, you're so cute, I can't stand it. Every time we fulfill his will, we matter to him. We're a piece of him. The Makar, the source of who we are is him. How could he not care? And we have the chutzpah to say, even to say that we're sediment Jews? Are we really sediment Jews? Look where you are tonight. And now, the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, he was a Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov, okay? That close to the Baal Shem Tov. Listen to what he says that he learned from his Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov. Shamati mimori, I heard from my teacher, sherov anvisanuso shela adam, when a person has too much humility, go rain, it causes, shenisrachik me avodas Hashem, that he is distanced from serving Hashem. Shemitzad shifluso enumamin ki ha adam go rain, ayudait filosofasaraso, shefa. He feels he's so low and so unimportant and so bad that he doesn't even believe that a person, when he davens and learns Torah and works on himself, he brings nourishment and abundance to all of the world. Even the angels are nourished by his Torah and his tefillah. Now he's not talking about a tzaddik, he's talking about a Jew. That's you. That's me. We are Jews. And we got to put out the fire. That's how it works. Now, Yom Kippur's coming and we're very worried. You don't know what's going to be. So the Baal Shem Tov said the following also. He said, you know, there's a weird pasuk in Tehillim. It says, Ima bonus tishmarka, Hashem mi amod. If Hashem keeps all of the Averos, if you're going to look at all the Averos, Hashem, what's going to be? None of us can stand. We're all dead ducks. We're all gone. We're done for. Because the truth of the matter is, when a Jew doesn't fulfill the Torah properly, he doesn't deserve to exist. That's the bottom line. So how are we all existing? Because you, Hashem, are a soleach. You're a forgiver. You forgive. And you know what? Because you forgive, now we can have some Yeras Hashem. Now we can have some awe and fear of Hashem. Does this sound logical to you? Because you forgive, we can have fear of you. It's the opposite. Isn't it the opposite? Because you forgive, now I don't have to be afraid. No, says the Baal Shem Here's how it works. If we think that Hashem doesn't forgive, then we're finished before we start. What's the point? It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm dead duck anyway. It doesn't matter whether I did this, whether I did that. I'm finished. I can't keep 
all of the mitzvahs. Not me, the way I am. I'm too lowly. I can't do it. But, says the Bashantel, if I know that Hashem is forgiving and that he takes so many things into account, then I have a chance. Then I can say, oh, whoa, maybe if I can keep in mind that I have to serve him, I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm going to get some things done. I'm going to know that I'm accountable, that I'm held accountable, that I'm looked at, that I'm measured, that I'm assessed, that Hashem will forgive, but he will also hold me accountable. Oh, 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 now I know. I really do matter. I really do matter. And it's, it's not that I'm going to burn for everything. It's that I have a chance. So we have to keep this in mind. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the forgiver. He is the one that comes. He makes a date with us. Yud Tishrei. Come, Kinderlach. Come to me. I'm coming to be with you. And on that day, I want you to bring me all of your garbage. I love you. I want you to empty out yourself from all of the things that are bothering you. Talk to me about your resentments. Talk to me about your failures. I promise you I'll clean you. I'll even be your mikvah. Step into me, mikvah Yisrael Hashem. I will be your mikvah. That's how much I love you. Because if you think about it, we're going to go Yom Kippur and we're going to stand in Shul and we're all going to go Shamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu. One second. One second. Why would I do that? He's going to punish me. Like, the only way it can work is if I know that there is a loving being there who gets what the problems are and is interested in helping me. I'll give you an example. Sometimes I'll be speaking to a young woman who's newly married, a few months or whatever, right? And she may be having some problems in her marriage. She may not know how to make things work right, and, and you know, then the husband gets a little bit worried about what's, is our marriage working, is it not working? Everybody starts to get all, ah, ha, ha, right? And so the people around her are all telling her, listen, you have to go for professional help, otherwise you're gonna lose this marriage. This happens to girls. I hope it doesn't happen to anybody here, but it does happen to people. So sometimes I'll be on the phone with this girl and I'll say, you know, let's talk about what's going on. What do we do about this? And she says, everybody tells me I need to go to a professional. I'm supposed to walk into a stranger and, and talk about the most intimate details of my life? What am I supposed to answer her? She's 100% right. You go into a stranger and talk to them about very, very private, embarrassing things? No. You need to talk to somebody who knows you and loves you and supports you even if you're not perfect and says, let's try this, let's try this. Maybe this could work. What do you think of this? And maybe in her own time, she'll come to understand that maybe she does need to speak to somebody professional. But she feels supported by somebody that loves her. So the question is, is Hashem a stranger in your life? And if he's not quite a stranger, how close are you to him? What's coming between you? Maybe some things he did that you don't like. It's going to come between you and him. You don't feel so close. Why should I tell you everything that's bad about me? I don't feel like I should. You don't even care. Look what you're doing to me. How much of a stranger does Hashem in our lives, really and truly? (coughs) 
So Rabbi Victor Miller tells us, when he talks about Bitachon, he gives us two ways to really make Hashem a non-stranger in our lives. It's like a one-two punch, and it's nothing new. I'm convinced you've all heard about it before, but I promise you, and I can really feel like I can promise you, if you try this, it will change your relationship with Hashem, and He will become not a stranger, but a father, a caring, beloved, rich uncle. <laughs> he will be the closest thing, and you will want to share with Him all of the things about you that you're worried about. Here's what he says. Punch, right punch. Anything you do during the day, as much as possible, before you do it, ask Hashem for help. Now, a lot of people do this already, but I'm talking, he says, really ask everything. Whether you're making a cake for Yom Tif and you want it to turn out, whether you're dealing with serious illness, Lo'olenu, and you have to talk to him about that, whether you have problems in relationships, parnasa problems, ask him for everything before you do it. Please help me do this. Please with me, be with me when I do that. Please hold my hand while I do this. Please give me support. Help me to be successful. Every single thing in your life, there is nothing that is not within the realm of what we ask Hashem to help us with. That's the right punch. Left punch is that afterwards, you thank him profusely and in detail for everything. You wake up in the morning and you thank him in detail. I can actually move my legs when I get out of bed. I'm not falling when I get out of bed. I can see, I can hear, I can think. You gave me a bed. You gave me a roof over my head. You gave me a blanket. You gave me air conditioning, whatever it is. Really, you, this becomes something that you do and it creates such a relationship between you and a Kodesh Baruch that he is never going to be that stranger. And remember, this is even at hard times because a lot of people who go through hard times will then give us examples of how they saw Hashem's help as they went through the hard time. People see this all the time. He helps in every situation. Make him be a non-stranger in your life. Yom Kippur is a day, it is a gift, it is a privilege, it is a tremendous simcha. We get to go, and he cleans us like a mother cleans her baby. He washes behind the ears, and you know how the neck creases, you have to get into the neck where all the milk collected, and then it smells, right, and it gets these little pieces, right, right? And then the, the, he cleans the diaper, and then he cleans the belly button, and he cleans between the toes. You know, the toes always get the little pieces between them. He does the whole thing, and you feel comfortable. And even if you're kicking and screaming, you know that he loves you. Then he's not a stranger in your life. That's what we have to do. But, like we said, Hashem is a forgiver. But the fact that he's a forgiver means he's going to look at what we did in order to forget. And when he looks at what, he, what we did, he's going to know, oh, okay, where are you holding? Let's see what we have to do here. So we have to take a look at the Rambam, and the Rambam tells us what is teshuva. What is teshuva? Very famous line. Umahi ha teshuva. What is teshuva? Hu sheya'azov hachote chet'o. That is that the sinner should leave his chet, 
and he should remove it even from his thoughts, and he should decide that he's never going to do it again. Okay, sounds simple, right? We don't need to prepare for Yom Kippur. We all got it. Simple. But here's an interesting piece. The sinner should leave his sin. Question number one. We're all standing together and saying, oh, Shavnu, together. Oh, you did the same sins I did, guys. It's not my sin. We all sin. I'm not really particularly guilty. My sin. What are you calling this my sin? Okay? Shem said, don't steal. I stole. It's not my sin. And secondly, chet o, why not chet of his sins? I don't know about you, but I don't think I only had one sin. I I think, unfortunately, it's a lot of sediment over here, right? What is he saying? His sin. What does he mean, his sin? What does that mean? So Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky, Zatzal, gives a beautiful marshal for this. And he says, there was once a town that had a highway. And this highway was very, very poorly constructed. It had all these sharp twists and turns and paddles. It was a mess. And everybody who drove on that highway got injured. It was, it was crazy. Every day there were accidents on this highway. More and more accidents on this highway. So finally, the town council gets together and they say, what are we going to do about this highway? It's in the middle of town. Everybody drives on it. How can we deal with this highway? So they come up with a brilliant idea. They say, we're going to build a hospital at the end of the highway. <laughs> and indeed, they built a hospital at the end of the highway. Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved? <laughs> what they're going to do in the hospital is they're going to fix the broken arm. They're going to bandage up the lacerations. They're going to put a, a neck brace around the neck. They're going to do surgeries. But the next day, the person goes back on the highway and gets injured again. And unfortunately, I think, sometimes we use Yom Kippur as the hospital. I sinned all year. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to give extra tzedakah, and I'm going to do an extra mitzvah. I'm going to visit somebody who's sick. Okay, check that off. And I'm going to make it real. I'm going to have a lot of guests and, and be nice to them. Check that off. And I'm going to, you know, do all these things. And I, I, honestly, I'm not making fun of it because those are very important things to do. But they don't fix the highway. So we've got a broken highway. Every single one of us, if we're alive, has a broken highway. Yes? And what that means is, I think, the way I interpret this notion is that <clears throat> if you really think about it, there's something that is at the root of most of the things that I do that are not in line with who I know I can be. Most of the things that I do that separate me from Hashem, that cause me to make him more of a stranger than he needs to be, that gets in the way of my relationships and how I treat myself and how I treat people, most of them are rooted in a specific pattern that I have. So if I want to really do the kind of tshuva and use Yom Kippur in a way that will work, I'm going to need to focus and figure out 
what's at the root of this? And so what I'd like to do for a minute, before I do that, I want to read to you from a different parak in the Rambam, where he talks about this. He makes it very clear about this broken highway. Listen to what he says. Al tomar she'en tushuva elame averos she'yesh behen ma'aseh. Don't think that tshuva is only about actions that you did, and now you're going to fix up those actions. Don't think that. Like, and he gives an example, znus, immorality, gezel gneva, stealing, thievery. Okay, those are actions. If you did them, now you have to do the proper tshuva, and then you've done tshuva. Mm-mm. Ella, kishem shetzarich adam loshuv me'elu. Just like a person has to do tshuva if he stole something. A person has to examine and search in his own wrong attitudes and ways of looking at the world. And then when you figure it out, when you figure it out, he can do tshuva from anger, from hatred, from jealousy, from deceit, and from chasing after money and honor. So he's got to realize there are two different kinds of tshuva here. Yes, if you, you didn't make a bracha achrona, you do tshuva, you try to be careful to make a bracha achrona in the future. And you put things in place that will help you to make a bracha achrona in the future. But there's something much more organic over here. And that is that we have got to take the time to figure out our broken highway. And you'd be surprised how many of us have a hospital at the end of the highway. I got the band-aids. Okay, um, I know that I just keep I just keep being jealous of that person, so I'm gonna listen to a share on jealousy. And that's great. Listening to a share on jealousy is great. But you gotta find out what it is that you're in and what the impact is. So I wanna give you an example. I just came up with an example that I happen to see sometimes. Tell me if you relate to it. You may not relate to it, but let's just take a look at this example. So let's say that's a per- there's a person, and her pattern is that she tends to withdraw. The minute something goes wrong, she withdraws. It might be with her spouse, maybe with her husband, it might be with her parents, her siblings, her neighbors, the people she works with. So she will never say, you know, it really hurt me when you said that, or I didn't appreciate it that you came late when I was really there on time. Whatever it is, she withdraws. And then, you know, her face gets a certain way and there's a certain tension in her body because she was hurt, but she's not going to say anything about it, right? So now let's, let's talk about the impact on the people around her. First of all, everybody knows she's upset. Yes, you relate? Everybody knows she's upset. She's not saying anything. But everybody knows she's upset. And then everybody feels bad about themselves because maybe it's me she's upset at. Did I do something wrong? So we all start walking with eggshells around this person, right? Never calm around this person. Oh no, nobody did anything wrong. And you feel worse and worse and worse. And if she has children, what are the children learning? That this is the way you deal with life. Something happened and you don't tell anybody. You don't bring it out and confront them in a nice way and become more intimate with the person because you discuss what's going on for you. No, you have that tense look all the time. 
And now what, what is the impact on her? Let's look at the impact on her. What happens to her relationships? Can she be close or loving to anybody? She's constantly on guard that she's going to be hurt. She doesn't deal with it when a close, intimate person in her life does something that hurts her. She becomes more and more separate. And eventually, she doesn't even have the bandwidth to think about caring about you. Because after all, life is really tough, and people are always mean to me, and it's always their fault. Now, what's her broken highway? Her broken highway is that she just withdraws. She will not take responsibility to deal with the things that are going on in her life. Look at the impact. So one thing we know, if we want to find our broken highway, look at the impact in your life of the things that aren't working and trace them back to a central point and you will find your broken highway. Now she can read a self-help book. That's a nice thing to do in that hospital. <laughs> self-help books, they've got piles and shelves of self-help books. But even those self-help books aren't going to help until she figures out her highway. So, you understand we've got to find the highway, we've got to find the impact. Now I want to read to you from another book. Okay? This one is called Vitar Libenu. And he says something very, very interesting. He says, you all know the story of Cain and Hevel. Cain brings a carbon. His brother, Hevel, copies him and brings a carbon. Hashem accepts Hevel's carbon, and he doesn't accept Cain's carbon. And Cain is very, very sad and upset. And Hashem comes to him and says, Cain, all you have to do is try. Reach out. Be a little bit better. And you're going to be so great. But if you don't fight this Yetzirah, it's going to overcome you, and it will rule over you. I'm telling you, I know I'm the designer. <laughs> I know how you work. I know all the, all the intricate pieces of how you work. So says the Leif Tohar, this is really interesting. He says, the first Musar ever given in the world was Miba'al HaMusar HaTov B'Yoser, the best Musar giver in the world, Shehu Borei Olam. That's the creator of the world. Was he the best Musar giver? Yes, he's the best Musar giver. V'ha-musar nitan ba'ofen ishi. And that Musar giver gave that Musar in such a personal way. B'nevua ishit. In a, a prophecy, he spoke to him directly, personally about him. Can you imagine if Hashem would speak to each of us about us and help us to figure out our broken highways? We wouldn't want it. We wouldn't listen. You're wrong. No, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> but listen to what happened here. Zos lo azar. Zos lo azar It didn't help. And he wasn't successful in stopping this Kayan from doing a terrible Avera. Because then Kayan went on to do what? Kill his brother. So he says, this is crazy. How could this be? And he says, because... There is nothing outside of you that can ever make you do teshuva. Not even Hashem himself. By the way, look at all our Nevi'im. The Nevi'im came and spoke straight from the mouth of a Kodesh Baruch Hu into them, into Klai Yisrael. And they still didn't do teshuva. Because nothing will help you unless rak hachlata shelcha hapnimis. The only thing that can ever overcome the Yetzirah, there's only one thing. When you make an inner 
decision that you're not going to do that anymore. Once you make that inner decision, then all the other things can help you. The sheer can help you. The self-help books can help you. But once you keep hurting yourself on that broken highway and you realize the impact of your behavior, what it's causing in your life, how it's affecting you spiritually, it's running you. That highway, you're not driving on the highway. The highway's driving you. Once you get the impact, you may be willing to make a decision. That's it. I'm done. So now you're going to say, that's all very nice, Miriam Feldman. First of all, do you do this? I'm not answering. <laughs> second of all, second of all, I want to share something from Ruving Leichter, who, who quotes the Nefesh HaChayim. <coughs> I forgot to have a board. It's a struggle. That inner decision is hard to come to. So remember, the steps are, first we've got to figure out the broken highway. We've got to figure it out. Even notice the band-aids that we put on in our very sincere efforts to fix the highway. The whole town council came up with this idea of a hospital at the end of the highway. And I have young camper, that's the best hospital of all. It's going to cleanse me and then I can go right back on my highway. But when you get the impact of your behavior on the people in your life and on your own self, is this who you want to be when you die? Is this how you want to be seen by the most intimate, closest loved ones in your life? Eventually, hopefully, you'll come to make a decision. You say, no, no, I can't make a decision. I can't do that. I can't give up. I can't give up my highway. So Ruben Lechter says, the Nebuchadnezzar tells us, and I think we've talked about this before in some other places, but here's a slightly different piece I, want, I would like to share. When Hashem talks to Klag Yisrael at Har Sinai, he says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha Asher Hutsesicha Me'eretz Mitzrayim. I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of the land of Mitzrayim. Of course, Mitzrayim indicates the biggest highway of all, right? I took you off the highway, and I didn't even make you figure out the impact. I just took you out of the highway. I hospitalized you in a much better place. Gave you great recuperation, okay? Great. But take a look. This is, a, the Gemara says, and if you look at the word Anochi, the Gemara in Shabbos says this. What does Anochi represent to us? And this is what you must, we must get this and believe this. Otherwise, we get nowhere. Hashem said to us when he gave us the Torah, Anoch, I, Nashi, my soul. My essence, Sivas Yahavis. I wrote my soul into the Torah, and I gave it to you. It says the Nefesh Chaim, what does, what does it mean, Nashi, that I wrote my soul into the Torah? It means it is actually a piece of Hashem's essence. And he says, the other meaning of nefesh is ratzon, my will. I gave you my essence and my will. I instilled it in you when I gave you the Torah. We were all there. Whether we know it or not, we have within us Hashem's essence and his will. 
Now, sometimes we look at a family that has no connection to Yiddishkeit whatsoever, a Jewish family, no connection, no training, nothing. They raise their kids, and their son comes home from college and says, Ma, I met a girl. Dad, I met a girl. Oh, great. What's her name? Uh, Christina Smith. Blonde, blue-eyed. I know we have blonde and blue-eyed people here. Yes, we know you're Jewish. But the point is, <laughs> the parents go berserk. What do you mean? You're supposed to marry a Jewish girl. How often does that Maybe nowadays they don't even care. I don't even know. But the point is that those people who have no connection to Yiddishkeit have a very deep connection to Yiddishkeit. They have the soul and the ratzon of the creator himself inside of them, which means that every Jew inside has a longing and a pull to do Hashem's will because it's in them. It's in us. Now we can cover it over. Sometimes people purposely cover it over. I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear. I'm just going to focus on climate change. <laughs> Seriously, people tell me that sometimes. You know, I have a passion for climate change. Not everybody has to keep the Torah, but I want to make the world a better place. So I'm going to focus on climate change. I have literally had people say this to me because they have that longing in their heart. They have the desire to be close to Kodesh Baruch the creator, the nurturer, the director, the sustainer, the lover, the kind one who only cares to do what is good for every single one of us in our lives based on who we are. We have that inside of us. So if you say to yourself, I can't get out of my highway. I don't, I, I can't, I can't, I can't make that inner decision. You can, because it's already in you. It's already made. The decision is made already. You just have to access it. It's what you want. It's who you are. Unfortunately, we have a world that is a raging fire. And the fire makes us not see. And the fire is trying to obliterate the fact that there is a creator. You fool! You want to create? You want to, you want to connect to this creator? You fool! You fool! We've got to go out there and sell the book. And what do we even understand of ourselves? And we're not even in touch with that inner desire enough? I'm supposed to go out there and I'm supposed to sell the book? I'm supposed to reflect this? Yes. Yes. Because it's in you. It's not even you. It is so deep in you that it's the ultimate you. It's not you with the coverings of, of the things that happened to you and the experiences and the way you feel about yourself because of them and the things people have said to you and the comparisons you make and all that. It's not you. It's not you. Which brings us to the next thing. There's a Medrash in Tehillim that says, Ashrei Adam Shegavoha 
me pish o velo shapish o govoha mimenu. Fortunate is the person. Fortunate is the person that is higher than his sin and not that his sin is higher than him. Because here's what happens. I identify myself by everything that's wrong with me. Well, that's who I am. I am that person who withdraws. And you know what? I actually think that that's a good thing. Because by withdrawing when there's a problem, I am maintaining peace in the world. I keep peace in my family. I'm not pointing out to my husband what he did wrong. I'm not pointing out to my mother how she hurt me. I'm not telling my sister-in-law what she did the wrong thing when she came to my house to visit preemptive. No, I zip my lip and I'm a good person. A person who cannot recognize this, unfortunately has blocked herself from being higher than her sin. She's lower than her sin because she's made her sin the right thing. She's made her sin the higher thing. Or you have the person who says, listen, I'm a nothing. I'm worthless. I'm worthless. I don't even have harah. Another woman said that to me this week. She said, I, listen, I don't have harah. I don't have regret for the things I did wrong. I'm sorry. You know, I'm going to, I'm Yom Kippur, I'm going to, but I can't make myself have regret. I just can't. I understand that. How deeply do we understand if we did, we forgot the diamond chakras or whatever it is, and oh, I have such haraka. And you spend the whole Yom Kippur, oh, oh, I have terrible haraka. Oh, 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 oh. And meanwhile, we don't even know what it means that we did that Avera. We don't understand it. Okay, I spoke not nicely about somebody. I feel bad that I did that. Do I get how bad it is? No. Otherwise, I would never speak again. And I can't know how hard I hit, how many bruises I'm going to have on my chest by Motsoya Kipper. I can't understand why I should have Haraka for this. I was nasty to my husband. Okay, I'm sorry. Come on. We say to ourselves, you know what? I am my hate. I just, I just have problems with relationships with everybody. It's just, I'm a loser, okay? Hashem may be this way. When you define yourself by your hate, you are making your chait higher than you, and then you're, you're done. You're done, because now your chait rules. So what the Midrash is telling us is that you have to always know you are bigger than this. You have the zone and the nefesh of a Kodesh Baruch Hu in you that will drive you crazy until you listen. It will drive you crazy. You will not feel good about yourself until you listen to that piece of you that is him. And you're gonna fight it, you're gonna say, no, it's me, or I'm doing the right thing. That's, we're gonna fight it. And until we recognize that we are higher than that hate, we can't stop it. Then we go back on the same highway again and again and again. So Rabbi Yochanan Zweig says something very interesting. He says, Hillel Omer, Hillel says, Im anili nili. If I am not for me, who is for me? He says, what does that really mean? It sounds very, 
very uh, self-centered. If I'm not for me, how we live in a very if I'm not for me, who is for me generation. It's all about me, right? Oh, that just doesn't work for me. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, that's not good for me. You, you've all heard this. This is the thing now. Be who you are. And that's actually what he's saying. Says Rabbi Yochanan, you know, if you look at yourself, there are a lot of things you're doing in your life that you don't really want to be doing. And he says, Yom Kippur is not about the, the hard banging. Yom Kippur is a time where you sit down and you think to yourself, who am I really? What drives me? What do I want? Who am I? Who is this person? And if you can work at defining that, that becomes who you want to be. And then a lot of the things that we do because we think we should or everybody does, we don't have to do anymore. I'm going to give you an example that just happened to me. I'm going to share with you an example. As Rosh Hashanah came closer and closer, I felt a very great need to just be at peace on Rosh Hashanah, just be able to focus. Now, in all of my years, except when I was uh, you know, very young and went out to the yeshiva for, for Rosh Hashanah, Kippur, whatever, I've always had guests on Rosh Hashanah. I love having people. I love my people. I love connecting with people and knowing them in a better way than just standing at Kiddush. You find out so many amazing things. I remember you, Shoshana, Jeter came to our house and we heard about her childhood, which is just so rich. You have to hear her story. I could say that about so many of you. There's so much going on in every person's life. And it's so uplifting and exhilarating that you learn so much. And I love it. Yes, it's a lot of work. But I love it. It's worth it to me to connect. And for some reason, before Rosh Hashanah, I just felt I just I just, I need space, I need time, I need Rosh Hashanah. So I said to my husband, what if we don't have company this Rosh Hashanah? First time ever. Then it's an opportunity to talk to people about Rosh Hashanah, to discuss all the important things. And he said, okay, because he comes home very tired from Shul. <laughs> he didn't argue too much. So the first night of Rosh Hashanah, he had family and a friend. And then we didn't have any couple accompany the other meals except one person the last day. And when I was in Shul and Rosh Hashanah, I didn't even think about what I had in the oven, or I have to get home and do this and this, or I put it. I didn't even think about it. I didn't care. It's me and my husband. He's happy with anything, such a time. And I, you know, I don't even care. It's Rosh Hashanah. It changed my Rosh Hashanah. And that's not because I don't love all of you. I want all of you at my table, every Shabbos. <laughs> I do, honestly. But I felt an inner need. Now, it's not what's done. My husband's the rabbi. I should be having a lot of people. I should be taking care of people in Rosh Hashanah. But I realized if I do have guests, I'm only doing it because I'm supposed to. It's expected. Why do I, why? And I had such a clearer Rosh Hashanah because of this, honestly because of this. That's a small step. It gets a little scarier when you realize that a lot of things you're doing in your life are not something you actually think is important for you or that you want to do. Now, some things we have to do. We have to drive carpool, okay? We have to drive carpool. 
You don't have to like it, but we have to do it. But are there things that we're doing because it has to look a certain way? Or people in our society or our chavra expect a certain thing. He says, sit down on Yom Kippur. It's a day of clarity. It's a day where you lift off all of the dirt and the sediment, where you take that cloth on top of the barrel and you sift through everything. Who am I? Bottom line. Start from there. And don't be afraid to say to yourselves, I discovered something about myself. I remember a number of years ago, there was a young uh, couple here. Her husband, I don't know if he was in the cola. I can't remember what he did, but he did one of those kinds of things here. And of course, every shopper they had to have a lot of guests. And one time she said to me, you know, I realize that having guests on Friday night is very hard for my family, so we're stopping. She never had another guest on a Friday night. And it changed the Friday night. Now, I am not suggesting that everybody not have guests on Friday night. For her, it didn't work. And she had the courage to say so. And there's an interesting thing that he adds to this. You know, I don't know if you've heard the drasha, the Shabbat Shuvah drasha on Shabbos, where my husband was mentioning that the two happiest days of the year for the Jewish people were Yom Kippur and Tuba of. And on those two days, the young girls used to go out all dressed in white. They would all borrow from each other so nobody looked like they had better clothes than anybody else. And they would run in the fields and they would call to the men to come and choose a wife. And so Rabbi Yochanan says, this is ridiculous. I understand on Tuba of it makes sense. Okay, good. But Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, the kind of, they just went in with live, with knife, with name. He just went in and the red string turned white and it's an unbelievable day and we, we heard Hashem's voice coming out of the mouth of the coin, Godal, oh my gosh, we, we threw ourselves on the, on the ground, we just couldn't believe it. And then the girls go out into the fields and say, come on, what's, what's that about? He says, it's the perfect day because marriage is about who I am in my essence. It's not about the resume and the pictures and all the accounts from all the people you call, yes, she's the best at this and he's the best at that, they're all the best. Everybody's the best. No, it's about, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I'll tell you who I really am. And that's why in the, in the mission it says that they said, don't look at beauty, don't only look at this, don't only look at that, but just look at me. This is the day where you get to be me. And you have a loving creator who really already knows who you are and loves you the way he made you. And we spend our lives trying to be something else so that we can pull ourselves into thinking that we're not on the highway that's broken. Be you. But you have to understand that a big piece of you is that longing for connection with a person. You can't wipe that out of the picture because then you won't be you. There's a lot more here than the typical, oh, I better do shuba. I'm going to be very serious. I'm going to you know, make sure every single word I say is perfect. He doesn't want that. He knows that you haven't sifted all the water. It's okay. You're all he has. You ladies and other communities around are the only ones he has that can take a stand for that connection that we have to him and the purpose of the world in the middle of a raging fire that is telling the world there is no God. Do what you want. Do what feels good. You don't have to listen to anybody. And what's happening to our world? What's happening? We're the only ones that can take a stand against this. There's nobody else. 
It's you. And if it's you, then you want to try to be in line with what a Kodesh Baruch Hu is asking of you in his book that you're selling. We gotta be serious. This is serious. Not, this is not a joke. And we can't think that he's so kind that he doesn't hold us accountable. I forgive you so that you can know that I'm going to look at you, I'm going to assess you, I'm going to hold you accountable, and sometimes it hurts a little bit. So think about what you're doing, because I believe in you. I know who you are, and I'm going to hold you accountable. You don't like that. I'm going to clean you in the bathtub. You don't want me to go and clean your ears. You're going to kick and scream. I'm going to clean your ears. I'm going to look at every aspect of you and make sure that you are you today. Now, this is big, holy work. And people say, oh, I dread Yom Kippur. Okay, dread Yom Kippur, but also love it a little bit because you're being loved. What could be more loving to you, Robin Helper, than the creator of the world looking at you and holding you and assessing you and cleaning you and bathing you and listening to you and saying, tell me everything, Robin. I want to know everything. What hurts? What's not working? What are you happy about with yourself? How can you become very close to me? He's the, the creator of the world, made a date with us to come and spend the day doing this. It's incredible. This is a miracle. And you don't have to be standing in shul the whole time. You could be home with your children, saying, Hashem, help me with my children. I'm fasting. It's very hard for me to take care of them. Or you could be home with a headache and say, Hashem, I'm in my bed. I can't do anything. Please, please hold me. Connect with him. Don't let him be a stranger. Don't let <coughs> God be a stranger in your life. <coughs> so, was that a bug? Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> okay. It's okay. God made bugs too. Okay. That's all right. So here's the thing. I just want to end off with, with a little thought. Um, and then I want to give you a, a little paper to do a little work for yourselves. Please, ladies, don't go home and do nothing. Don't do nothing. Anything you do to prepare for Yom Kippur is worth it. It changes the world. You heard what, 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 what the Tzitkas Atzadik said. You heard what the Toldos Yaakov Yosef said. That one, our davening, our Torah learning, our efforts are nourishing the entire world, even the angels. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. It's such an avla. He said, that's the Yetzirah for Avodah We don't believe. We don't believe what the Torah tells us. That's a Yetzir Hara. That is the Satan trying to pull us away from Hashem. So we have to believe in our power. So I want to tell you one last thing. I'm going to keep it too long. One last thing I want to tell you. There's a book by Rabbi Heshi Kleinman called Teshuva. It's a very nice little book. And he says something in the introduction. It's an interesting story. And I, I find it very empowering. <laughs> You know that there was the yeshiva Samir that went to, that got to Shanghai during World War II. They, they learned in Shanghai, the whole yeshiva was saved. All the other yeshivas went up in flames. This yeshiva was saved, it was unbelievable. Over a hundred bucklin, or more than that. And they had with them, who traveled with them, Reverend Chesko Levenstein, who was a giant of unbelievable proportions. 
they ended up, he ended up moving to going to Eretz Yisrael after the war. He was a Mashiach and one of the Hebrew. But here they were in Shanghai. So on this particular Yom Kippur in Shanghai, it was very, very hot. It, but I guess it gets really hot and humid there to the degree that the Bukhran took off their jackets and, and hats. And in Mir, that was never done. They, people were fainting from the heat. They're not eating, they're not drinking, they're fainting, right? Rebchatzkol is in the front, at, you know, in front of the, on the, on the eastern wall, and he's wearing his suit and his hat and his palace. He's totally oblivious to the heat. He's just davening. Every Shemona Esrei lasts till the next Shemona Esrei. And they know it. They're already used to him. They know who he is. So they finished davening Myriv, and of course he's still davening Myriv. They ran up real fast. They grabbed something to eat, and they said, we're going to make him so happy. When he comes back into the base Medrash, he's going to turn around from Shemona Esrei, and we're all going to be sitting there learning. Imagine how happy he's going to be. But so you Kipper, who wants to sit down and learn, right? You want to eat for a long time, and then you want to collapse on the couch, and then maybe put a, a nail in the sofa. So they all come back into the base medrash, and he turns around finally after Myriv, and he sees them all sitting there. And he has this big smile on his face. He says, oh, this was such a dominate. Now remember, these kids, these young men, left their families burning in Europe. Okay, you can imagine what kind of young kid this was. Where's my mother? I don't know. Where's my father? I don't know. Some of them, you know, where are my siblings? They, and they had heard rumors already of some of the things that are going on. They didn't know what was happening. You can imagine how they got into that Yom Kippur, right? He says, what a Yom Kippur? I've never had a Yom Kippur like this. And you're sitting here now, and you're learning Torah, and you're on such a high. And what's going to happen to me? He says, I want to tell you a mushal. I'll give you an analogy. There was once a man, a very wealthy man, who had built for himself a giant mansion. And everyone in town watched this mansion going up. It was big and beautiful, almost like a castle. And it took a long time. Finally, the day came when it was just about finished, and he invited all the townspeople, his friends and everybody, his relatives, to come and watch the inauguration of this castle. And part of the inauguration is that he's going to climb up himself, and the top was a turret, and he's going to take this very expensive, beautiful ornament, and he's going to put it at the top of the turret. He's going to hang it there, everyone's going to clap, and then they're going to have this big feast that's going to be amazing. Everybody's watching. And he starts climbing up. I guess he takes a ladder up to the first eaves, and then he climbs higher and higher and higher. And as he's standing there trying to put the ornament up, the, the, a wind comes and knocks him over, and he falls, 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 falls to the ground. And he's lying on the ground, and he's writhing in pain. And he goes, my mansion, my mansion fell. My mansion, all of that is gone. My mansion is finished. And they come running over to him, and they say, your mansion didn't fall. You fell. So you have some broken bones, we'll have to take you to the hospital, but eventually you'll be okay, and you'll come back, and you'll go back into your mansion. Your mansion's okay. So he says to them, you built the mansion today. Your tefillah, your sincere desire to be close to Hashem, you built a mansion. Even if you fall, your mansion is still there. And ladies, we have to know this. We have to understand that we have a mansion that we built. Every time we think about the fact that we believe that there's a God and we do what we can to try to do His will, 
you built a floor in the mansion. It's hard for me to tell but I'm just going to say this today, a few lines. You built a room in the mansion. I have a temper and I yell at everybody, but yesterday I controlled myself. You built a room in the mansion. I know I don't know how to have karakta and regret. I know I'm not going to daven so well, but I'm going to stay in shul and I'm going to say, Hashem, I want to be better. You built the floor in the mansion. So what if you fall? The mansion is still there. But you've got to work to build the mansion. Each of us, in our own way, with our own lives, our own history, our own wiring, our own character, our own physical abilities and inabilities, you are an entire world that Hashem made, and He made it for a purpose, and He has pleasure in you, and He holds you on His lap, and He kisses you and hugs you when you try to build a room in the mansion. And it doesn't matter, she builds a better one. It doesn't make any difference. It's your mansion. But we have to do the work. The fire is raging. You cannot, we cannot, walk into your Kippur without a sense of tremendous gratitude to Kodesh Baruch Hu who loves us so much, who is not a stranger, who says, tell me, I'll help you with all the intimate details. Talk to me. Let's make him not a stranger. Let's build, let's ask him for help. Let's thank him after he gives us the help. No matter what's going on in our lives, he's still helping us. He helps us to cope in the worst situations. He's helping us. When you develop this kind of relationship with him, everything feels easier. And then you realize that he wants your mansion. He wants your mansion. He wants to come visit it. You know, my daughter moved to Naugatuck, Connecticut this year with her family, Kamehameha. And I've never seen, they have an apartment, I've never seen the apartment, and they're, you know, building a whole new community there and everything. And I'm so eager to see what is their life like there because they lived on Yeshiva Lane for so many years. What is it like there? I can't wait to go and see at some point. HaKodesh Baruch feels the same way, only more. What's your mansion going to look like? What is my little one? What is she going to create? I'm so proud of her. She started something new. She created something new. She's building a new play, new home, and, and she started a new endeavor. I'm so proud of her. I can't wait to see how it's working. I'm going to come in and kick her and talk with her and see how she's doing. You have to understand who you are. He gave you his nefesh. He gave you his ratzam. Don't throw it in the garbage. Make use of it. He doesn't ask you to be perfect. You can be his salesman even if you're full of dirt. But you have to try, try to sit for that. He asks that you try, and he holds you accountable to try. We cannot let this day go without reaching out to him, no matter how lowly you feel you are. He loves you. He made you. You are the most important thing in the world because you're rooted in him. You cannot forget this. I wish you all a Gemara Hasimah and even more. The Gemara Hasimah doesn't even matter as much as you connecting to a Kodesh Baruch and Yom Kippur. No matter what happens, connect to him. Feel his love and his care. That's the most important thing of all. And I hope you have a Gemara Hasimah <laughs> Oh, I have these sheets for you to work on. Okay. Here.
Anybody want to make a comment or anybody have a question? No questions, no comments? You want to say something? Tanya wants to say something. Thank you. 